Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in the last two verses of chapter 3 down through verse 11 so that we can remind ourselves of the context and what the Lord is doing richly here among us. So Ephesians 3 verse 20, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. We've been learning of God's own eternal purpose. And that eternal purpose is being worked out in a moment of history in the body of Christ. That is the church of Jesus Christ. And that church in which this eternal purpose of which Paul had mentioned here in Ephesians 1 that is being brought to an accomplishment. It has already been accomplished in the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son and now is being brought to pass. It is being effective in our moment of history today in a local body of Jesus Christ, the church. We are to have a unity and conformity in our aim. We are to walk humbly before the Lord and with one another. We are to have unity and conformity in our doctrine. There is a foundational doctrine that all believers hold to, Regardless of labor or denomination, we're to hold vigorously and guard those two things that preserve the existing unity in our local New Testament assembly. And because we have differing gifts being manifested with one another, we're to preserve that foreordained coordination or that foreordained coordinated unity of this body. We're not cookie cutters one of another. 
You don't have a body if all you have is an arm. If everyone's an arm, you have no body. If everyone is a tongue, you don't have a body. If everyone is a foot, you don't have a body. You've got to have that body being gifted differently, all functioning, coordinated together. And those things, the aim, the unity of doctrine, and the coordination all come together so that we grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ himself. And you'll see that in chapter 4, verse 16, when he says, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so Christ has given gifts unto every believer for this coordinated unity to function. Those gifts, I think, can be divided into gifts that are manifestations of the Spirit, such as, if we're going to use the Corinthian church, such as working of miracles, that's no longer today, but that was a manifestation, wasn't it? It was a manifestation of the Spirit of God. Or the ability to speak languages previously unknown. Or to be able to give interpretation of a previous language unknown. Those were things manifesting the Spirit among that congregation. But there are also functions of the Spirit. And those functions are gifted men to the local New Testament body of Jesus Christ. Whether it be manifesting gifts or functioning gifts, all of those gifts are for the express purpose, now please hear this, to serve others in your local New Testament assembly. Now, of course, if you are manifesting, for instance, the gift of mercy, certainly a person that's doing that ends up manifesting it in other areas outside of just when we meet together one with another, right? But the aim and the purpose of the gift is not for you. It's for us. The purpose of the gifts of these men in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, are not gifts in and of themselves for them, but for the body of Jesus Christ. And so it was true with the Corinthians, with the gift of tongues. They were saying, ah, this is great. I can build myself up. I can do all these things myself. Paul says, no. That gift is for the building up or the edification of the body of others in that local New Testament assembly. And folks, if it is true, if it is true that the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts that have been given by Christ through His Spirit is for the church body, would you agree with that? then it is nonsensical. In other words, it makes absolutely no sense to speak of a believer who has been gifted 
and they are apart from a New Testament assembly. Now I pause to let that sink in a little bit. If Christ has gifted us both functionally and in manifestation of those spiritual gifts, and the purpose of those gifts is for one another in a local New Testament church, then it makes absolutely no sense to speak of a believer who is apart from a local New Testament assembly. And the New Testament knows nothing of a believer who is not baptized or a part of, a member of, a local New Testament body of Christ. You can just sit through in your mind and think through the whole New Testament and you see nothing addressed to people outside of, do you hear that, outside of a local New Testament assembly. In fact, the scripture speaks of those inside and those outside. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And it's amazing how often we're looking at the Corinthian church because they're the ones who misunderstood these gifts. But my point is this, that the Scripture doesn't know anything of a believer who is unbaptized or not a part of a local body of Christ or inside that is a member of a local New Testament body. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I think I said 12, but in chapter 5, at the end of that, you've got this situation of a professing believer in a local assembly who was committing immorality, that is, he was committing incest with his father's wife, and there to church discipline that person. But note what he says in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, this letter is unknown to us today, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Everybody see that? So when Paul says, look, don't associate with an immoral person, he's not saying, depart from this life. Because the world, this is how the world operates, right? But what did he mean when he said that? Verse 11. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called believer if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now note verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Everybody see that word? Outside of what? Outside of a local New Testament assembly. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within? Everybody see that? Within, understood, within that local body. So verse 13, he says, but those who are outside, outside of what? A local New Testament assembly, God what? God judges. Everybody see that? 
So when you're looking at the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't know of a believer who's been gifted for the purpose of edifying one another in a local New Testament assembly. For a believer to say, I am part of the body of Christ, that is the spiritual body of Christ, but not be identified with a local New Testament assembly, A, he is not exhibiting the reality that he is professing spiritually, and the New Testament doesn't know of someone apart from that local New Testament assembly. If you're apart from that New Testament assembly, then you are outside, and if you are outside, whose judgment are you under? God's judgment. Now when I say that, I don't mean necessarily they're under the judgment of hell. I'm just talking about God is the one making decisions about that individual. And folks, I would say, I know in my own case, and my own case is not the standard, but I'm just using myself as an example, that when when I got born again, there were several things instantly I knew. Like instantly. One, I need to read my Bible. I was hungry, like a newborn babe, desiring the sincere milk of the Word that I could grow thereby. But here's the other thing that immediately I knew. I knew I needed to find a church. And I remember, I remember talking to the man who the Lord used instrumentally to point me in the Scripture and give me the Gospel. I remember talking to this brother, and his name was Al, and I said, Brother Al, how do you know what church to go to? And he didn't give me too much guidance, but he just took me to James 1.5, and he said, you know what? If you lack wisdom, ask of God, and he'll lead you. And folks, it wasn't, but like three or four days later, I sincerely went and asked God that, and that just my heart was just persuaded. You know what? It kind of make a lot of sense to go to the church that the man who led me to the Lord was going. And that's where I went. My point is, it was in my heart, right, to associate with the professing people of God. And so here we have this giftedness to each believer has been given gifts of manifestation. And to each one of us, grace has been gifted to us in the apostle being given to us and the prophet being given to us and the evangelist being given to us and the pastors and teachers being what? Given to us. That is a, those offices, those functions are gifts to each believer. Isn't that amazing? This is how Christ has ordered these things. And folks, those men who have been gifted to local assemblies have been given out of the redeemed to be a blessing to the redeemed. In other words, for the redeemed to grow up in all things unto Him. And folks, blessed, I think I can say this honestly and scripturally, blessed is the church body that has been gifted. 
with these men. Now, in saying that, and we're going to see here this morning, blessed is the church who's been gifted with the functions, these men of apostles and prophets, but we no longer have that gift functioning today. So how, how have we been gifted? How are we profiting by these men who are called apostles and prophets? So as we look at these passages in the book of Ephesians, we see these four functions of gifted men who have been gifted for the good and order of Christ's own church. If we're going to speak with these gifts in relationship to the Great Commission, we would speak of these gifts being given to teach them to observe all things that Christ has given to us. That's what these men's functions are. And I've said this before, the Great Commission cannot be fulfilled individually. The Great Commission can only be fulfilled by a church. It's a church that goes in order to plant what? Churches. Churches. It's a church that baptizes. It's a church where disciples are gathered. It's a church where the teaching of you to observe everything that is written goes on. This is where these things are happening. Now the first gift that I want of men that I want to look at is actually the prophets. We're only going to be looking at, as I mentioned before, the first two, apostles and prophets. Who are these men that are the prophets? Well, fundamentally, a prophet, even in the New Testament, fundamentally, prophets are men who speak new revelation from God. Prophets fundamentally are people who speak new revelation from God. Now folks, if we think about it, that makes absolute sense, doesn't it? It makes sense that as the church is brought into being in Acts chapter 2, that we would need new revelation from God about how to order those churches, right? How to gather those churches into bodies, what we are to be teaching those churches and what we call the church age. We would need new revelation. In fact, Joel prophesied of this. And when Peter got up in Acts chapter 2, and he answers his question, look, these men are not drunk, but this is a fulfillment that in the last days, God is going to pour out His Spirit indiscriminately upon all believers, and they will prophesy. Everybody hear that? They will prophesy. What Joel, what God is saying through the prophet Joel is that there was going to be a day where something new was going to happen. We know from Ezekiel, we know from Jeremiah, it's called the New Covenant. 
And when that happens, there would need to be new revelation for the operation of that body. Prophets functioned in that capacity. And you're here in Ephesians. If you go back to Ephesians 3, you'll see the hint of this. When Paul speaks about the stewardship of God's grace, verse 2, which was given to me, now note the next two words, for who? For you, that is for the church. Verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me, that is Paul, who's an apostle, the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. This was not manifested in the Old Testament, verse 5, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Do you see that? That is the speaking forth or the communication by the prophets of new revelation. Now those prophets were regulated. In other words, there are boundaries in which those New Testament prophets were to operate. And to see some of that, I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where we see some of those boundaries. Paul's having again to instruct and really harness in the Corinthians, but he speaks of these prophets. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 beginning in verse 26. Well, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, everybody see that? This is the church gathered, right? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. All right, all of those functions... Let all things be done for edification. Everybody see that? Then he gives the restrictions or the regulations for those who are going to speak in unknown human language. Now look look at verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak. Okay, so in that day, as the church was gathered... There would be new revelation given by the Lord through His Spirit to a person functioning in the office or function of a prophet. All right, Could you have ten of them speak in a church assembly? The answer is what? No. No. Could you have four? No. No? Paul says, all right, let two are at the most three prophets speak. So there's a regulation. And let the others pass judgment. Everybody see that? 
Now, folks, the others could be other prophets within that assembly. The others could be who? The assembly itself. In other words, as they spoke, new revelation, they were to be judged by existing revelation. Everybody see that? There's no way we can judge unless we have something or a standard to judge by. So there was a growing body of new revelation and explaining revelation that was coming up and if a prophet spoke, says, thus saith the Lord, here's some additional revelation concerning the mystery. Then we were to judge that speaking with the already existing revelation. Then he says, Verse 29, verse 30. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must be silent. So could you interrupt one another? No. No, you could not interrupt one another. Well, that sounds like order, doesn't it? People will say to me, sometimes they'll say, I don't like order, I like spontaneity. The New Testament likes order. <laughs> okay. So here you got if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must be silent. Verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one. Now, understood by how many or at the most? By two or at most three. You may all prophesy one by one for what purpose? Verse 31. So all may learn and all may be exhorted and the spirits of prophets are subject to the... Alright, so, so folks, here, here's just some regulations that we can pull out of this. There is no such thing as a person saying, well, the Holy Spirit came over me and I just couldn't help but speak. Because their spirit is subject to them. Say, well, I just couldn't help it. I just had to get up and spontaneously do this. Yes, you can help it. You say, well, I don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. Well, if two have already spoken, or at the most three... You're not quenching the Holy Spirit if you don't speak. You're obeying the Scripture. Folks, the Holy Spirit wrote this, didn't He? But folks, here's another truth that we can come out with this. That even though we have an instant in our New Testament of Agabus, foretelling the future. Right? The overwhelming number of times or the purpose of a prophet is to give new revelation so that we can learn 
Learn about who? Christ in His work. Does everybody see that? It says, verse 31, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Everybody see that? And folks, I say that, and now just take a step back and review. What is the purpose of the gifts? Therefore, one another. They're not for me to stand up on television and say, I'm a prophet, thus saith the Lord, two years from now, a plane's going to hit the building. It's for local New Testament assemblies so that we may learn not have our ears tickled, not satisfy curiosities, but so that we may learn and we may be exhorted to do what? Walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Everybody see that? When you look at just those few regulations and restrictions, I don't have statistics, but I would say it would rule out almost everyone who's claiming to be a modern day prophet. And folks, this also teaches us something about a New Testament church that we're gathered together to learn. We are gathered together to be exhorted with what we already know. This is the purpose of our gathering ourselves together. It's for the, our edification. It's for our building up. It's for our growing up into maturity. Sometimes people will say to me, they'll say, well, <clears throat> you know, I don't want to go to a church. feels like class. Well, it can feel that way. But you're supposed to be learning. And learning sometimes, sometimes it feels like class. But it's okay. If that learning by which you're learning is changing you into the image of Christ. That's the goal. And so here we have an area in which these men are gifts for local New Testament bodies that even though we have an instant, maybe two instances where a prophet foretold the future, their primary function is the giving of new revelation to exhort from that new revelation. They are to be judged by existing revelation and they are to be giving learning or doctrine to the church. And folks, that does make sense when you think that in the days of our New Testament that it was not complete. You needed the functions of these men, did you not? But folks, based upon this truth, now in this passage, it doesn't give us the duration of this function or this office or this gift. Can we acknowledge that? It just states it. 
okay? <clears throat> but based upon the fact that we have a completed canon, and Lord willing, on the time I'll show you this, but based upon the fact we have a completed canon, and based upon the fact that a prophet was necessary for the foundation of the church. In Ephesians 2.20, it speaks of this. We have being built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I think we are very safe to say, we are on scriptural foundation to say that there are no prophets today that Christ is gifting to local New Testament church bodies. We have that completed canon. And we are to judge everything by that canon, by our New Testament. So, was that gift necessary? Yes. yes. It was for the foundation of the church. That foundation has been given because these prophets dealt with the giving of new revelation. We have all the revelation in our New Testament, so that gift of the prophet is no longer needed today. It was needed in the foundation, but it's not needed for the building up of the building. Okay. Secondly, let's look at <clears throat> the gift of an apostle. The term apostle <clears throat> basically and fundamentally means to be a representative or a sent one. <clears throat> Sometimes it's translated a delegate. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 23, it talks about Titus being a messenger of the church. That word translated messenger is the word apostle. It would be a little a apostle. It would be like the, our church today, let's say we took a vote, and we said, all right, <clears throat> we're going to set aside X amount of dollars, and we're going to send pastor and one other man, we're going to send them to visit one of our missionaries on our foreign field we could very accurately say that I am on that foreign field your delegate. Right? I, we could say very accurately when I'm on that foreign field that I am the representative of Faith Memorial Baptist Church. We could also say very accurately that I have been sent. Right? I've been sent in that capacity. But there are apostles in general, sent ones, representatives, delegates, and then there are apostles, capital A apostles. This gift here could refer to either one, but I think when you look at the text, and the fact that they are part of that foundation of the apostles and the prophets, we're talking about not little a apostle, we're talking about capital A apostle. In other words, these are 
the eleven. Right? Not including Judas. Judas was technically called an apostle, but he went his own way and has his own place. Who else would have been one of those capital A apostles? Paul would have been one, right? There is, we have to confess, there is in our New Testament the use of the word apostle in a broader sense. I would not recommend us using that term today because of the confusion on how the religious culture of our day uses that term. In other words, I would not want, I would not want to go to the firm of Michigan and say, I'm an apostle from Faith Memorial Baptist Church. They would go. Right? <clears throat> because, folks, there is a broader sense in which this term is used but those who were little lay apostles did not have the gifts and signs of a capital A apostle. And again, this was for the foundation of the church. If you look at chapter 2 again in verse 20, you're going to see Christ Himself being the cornerstone. We are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He's going to mention it again in verse 5 when he talks about the mystery being revealed to the holy apostles and prophets. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, I am an apostle, so listen to what I have to say to you of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now folks, what are the criteria that would qualify you to be an apostle, a capital A apostle, in which I do think this sense is talking about primarily. Number one, that man must be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. He must be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, you'll see the early church using that as part of their criteria. Acts chapter 1 verse 21, when they went to select Matthias to take Judas's place, in verse 21 it says, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a what? A witness with us of his resurrection. So had Judas been there from the beginning, from the baptism of John, the answer to that was yes. And he fell from that office. Now they're looking at fulfilling the scripture from the Psalms and they're looking at replacing that office. And their criteria was this, that of all the men that are here in this local New Testament assembly, of all the men, the only ones that we're going to consider are those who were with the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry and was an eyewitness of his resurrection. They saw him bodily after his resurrection. 
Everybody see that? So when we get to 1 Corinthians, we see the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, we see him bringing up that own fact in his own apostleship. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when he talks about the fact that he's not taking wages, he says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Everybody see that? So he's appealing to the fact, he says, am I not an apostle? You're supposed to answer yes, but I'm a capital A apostle as it were because I have seen the risen Lord. And he had seen the risen Lord, hadn't he? Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he brings it up again to this church when he talks about that he is the least of the apostles. And you know from the context here that he's talking about those 11. He's talking about James, Peter, all the rest of those apostles. It says in verse 8, And last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So did our Lord appear to him? Was it kind of out of place? I mean, you would think that Christ would have called Paul in his earthly ministry, right? So that he could walk with him, with the other 11. But no, he was untimely born. It's like a person out of place. He did see the Lord Jesus, didn't he? All right, now note this. Verse 7. He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Verse 8. And last. You see that? Last of all. In other words, folks, did he see Christ? Yes. He did see Christ. And here we have a hint, I'm just going to say a hint, of the duration of this office. Christ appeared bodily to this man, allowed him to see him risen, called him to be an apostle, and he's the last one. He's the last one. So folks, when did Christ's gift of the apostle, when did it stop? Well, it stopped when Paul was beheaded. He's the last one. So there's a qualification. And there's a limitation on the duration of this gift to the local New Testament assembly. And folks, flowing out of that, number two, comes this, that that man who is a capital A apostle must be directly called by Christ Himself. I can say as a pastor, and I am fully persuaded in my own heart, that God has called me to do what I'm doing. But I just want to let you know in case there's any doubt at all. 
I've not seen the risen Lord with these physical eyes. I've not heard His physical voice. Period. But Paul did. Those 11 men did. And then thirdly, these men had to have the signs of an apostle to authenticate themselves as an apostle. And you're here in 1 Corinthians. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 down here in this passage. And he says in verse 12, he says, the signs of a true apostle. Were there those claiming to be apostles? Yes. Yeah, even in Paul's day, right? The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance. Now they never bring that one up. All perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Everybody see that? So, did an apostle, did he have all signs and wonders and miracles? Authenticating his ministry, all of that in perseverance in that office? The answer to that is yes. And he'll bring it up again in Hebrews chapter 2. The writer of the book of Hebrews brings this up when he talks about not allowing those words to slip And he says, verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, we've got to give mo- more closer attention to what we've heard. Verse 3, how are we going to escape if we neglect so great salvation after it was at the first? Everybody see that? At the first, it was spoken through who? The Lord. And it was confirmed to us by those who what? Heard the Lord instruct. Verse 4. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders, by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So did they have signs? Those signs authenticated, I am the real thing. They had seen the risen Lord. They had been taught by the Lord directly. Was Paul taught by the Lord directly? Yes. And God testified of their gifts. So folks, when we think about this, and we think about these two gifts that God has given to the church, We've already seen that because we have the completed revelation, we have everything that Christ wanted to communicate to us, that there is no necessity for the gift of a prophet given to us. But there is also no necessity, and based on these qualifications, there are no apostles today. So if a man gets up and he says, I'm an apostle, what do I know? Well, I know at minimum that he has been greatly deceived. 
Somebody could have taught him that. He could have, known, he could have not be scripturally instructed. But he's greatly deceived. Or at worst, he's a liar. He's bearing false witness. And we should not give heed to them. You say, well, what if the man's greatly mistaken and, you know, should I just not listen to him? Well, if you don't listen to him, he might ask you why, and then you can instruct him. We should not give credence to them. We shouldn't give clicks to them on YouTube. We shouldn't do these things. Now, I've said to you that these men are gifts from Christ to the church. And I have said to you that those two functions of men, apostle and prophet, are no longer today. Everybody with me? But the effect of their ministry is still with us today. Do you hear that? Their ministry is no longer gifted by Christ for us. But the effect of those men's mystery are still with us today. Where? In the writings of our New Testament. Now I want to conclude by looking at a couple of passages of Scripture and I want us to turn to John chapter 16. because our Lord told us that this is the way that it was going to be. John chapter 16. Now folks, when I turn to this passage, we immediately know that we're in the upper room. We immediately know that within hours, our Lord is going to be tried with six trials and put to death. So we are moments away from the end of His ministry. In John chapter 16 and verse 12, our Lord looks at these men and He says, I have many more things to say to you. Okay, do you hear what our Lord is saying? I got more that I want to say. But you can't bear them now. Now what does that imply? If he has more that he wants to say, what does it imply? There is more coming. Right? He didn't say to them, I've said to you everything that I want to say, I'm going to the cross. He said, I have more that I want to say to you. But they couldn't bear that now for many reasons. They were troubled, they were shook, they were in confusion, they were in perplexity, they didn't have the understanding, Christ had not been resurrected, a lot of things. Look at what he says. I have many more things to say to you, but... Verse 13, but when He, the Spirit of truth comes, now who's going to send that Spirit? Christ is at His resurrection. When He, the Spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you into all the truth. Who is the you there? It is those men in that upper room gathered around that table. It is the apostles. It's not me, right? When the Spirit of the truth comes, He, the Spirit of truth, will guide you, the men who can't bear what I want to say to them. He will guide you into all the truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to be sent by Christ to guide those men into all the truth, all the things that I want to say to you, but I can't tell you now. Everybody following the context there. Well, how could the Holy Spirit do that? Verse 13. For He will not speak of His own initiative. In other words, the Holy Spirit's not going to communicate to those apostles something he, the Holy Spirit's dreaming up. But whatever He hears, whatever the Holy Spirit hears, that implies somebody is speaking, Whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. Now let's pause. Did the Holy Spirit do that? Do we have a book of Revelation and it is about things to come? Folks, the majority of our Old Testament is all about future things. The majority of our New Testament is how to live in the church age. We have one book that is primarily given to future things. Verse 14, And the Spirit of truth will glorify me. How does the Holy Spirit glorify Christ? For the Holy Spirit, verse 14, will take up mine and will disclose it to you. So who's the one speaking? Christ is. Christ is speaking and He is disclosing it to the Spirit so that the Spirit can disclose it to the apostles. Verse 15, All things that the Father has are mine. Alright, did the Father disclose to the Son? He gave Him words, John 17. And the Son's going to take that speech, those words, and He's going to disclose it to the Holy Spirit and then the Holy Spirit is going to disclose it to the apostles, and they're going to write it down. All the things that I want to say to you, but don't go away sad like you're missing out on something. I'm going to speak to you through the Holy Spirit. He's going to guide you into all that truth. That is a gift. That is a gift. And folks, when those men heard from the Spirit, from Christ, from God the Father, they wrote down those God-breathed words. The writing of those God-breathed words we call inspiration. The men weren't inspired. The writing is inspired. They wrote it down, and we have it in our New Testament Now follow me. Everything Christ wants us to know in this age. Everything. Now folks, if He's told me everything, do I need new revelation if it were possible? No. Because nothing's missing. 
The Scripture is sufficient. The Scripture is complete. All the words from Christ given to those men so they could write it down by inspiration for the foundation of this great temple called the church, the habitation of God. Now, what now has to go on because there's no apostles and no prophets? Now what happens is that the same Holy Spirit will take the words that He gave to those men and they wrote it down. And in the process of Him giving those words to those men and them writing it down, the Scripture says, it glorified Christ. Now, we open the pages of our Bible and the Holy Spirit the same one who gave those words directly from Christ and directly from God the Father, takes the words that are written and illumines those words to us. And folks, when you go back to Ephesians, hopefully you haven't forgot what you already know. Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 17, I want the Father of glory to give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Everybody see that? He didn't say that Christ may speak to you directly. That the knowledge that's already been given, that you, those eyes of your heart, your understanding would be enlightened, verse 18, so that you will know. You will have knowledge. Everybody see that? That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit today. So that the existing words that we have in our New Testament through faithful translations, that the Holy Spirit can enlighten those words so that the hope of His calling and the riches of the glory and surpassing greatness of His power, that we may know more and more and more and more about that so our feet will be stabilized in this wicked and dark world. And that's why we gather. So we may know. We may learn and understand what has been written. In our last passage, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy. <clears throat> because at this point, you may say, okay, <clears throat> I see that. I understand that. Okay, but how, I mean, how does this illumination happen? I mean, what's the means by which this illumination occurred? Does the Holy Spirit illumine us to the understanding of what's already been written? Yes. yes. And what's already been written is everything Christ wanted to communicate to us in this age. Okay. But how does that illumination happen? And Paul helps us out here when he writes to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
And he tells him to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, how are you going to do that? The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust those to faithful men who will have the ability to teach others also. So he gives him three illustrations. A soldier, verse 3 and 4. An athlete, verse 5. A farmer, verse 6. Then he says, verse 7, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you what? There I see that. The Holy Spirit illumines what's already been given so that we may know and understand and be changed. How's the illumination going to happen? Folks, it's going to happen by you giving consideration to what he says. And the word consideration simply means to fix your mind upon it. To fix your mind upon it. In other words, if you go through all this preaching, all that you've heard today, you acknowledge the verses, yep, I, okay, good, and you walk out the door and you give no more consideration to it you will be missing out on understanding. You've got to fix your distracted mind (laughs) on what it's saying. And the promise is that if we place our mind and give our heart to understanding, Proverbs chapter 2, the Lord will give you understanding now I've said this many times sometimes that understanding can only come years after you are asking for it you say why is that because there's other understanding that you have to have before you can understand (laughs) but he's faithful when I came to the Lord My next words after my regeneration were this, that Lord, if You'll teach me Your Word, I will follow You wherever You lead me. And He has been faithful to do that. I've not always been faithful to hear. I've not always been faithful to understand like I should. I've not always been faithful to walk like I should be walking. But He has been faithful to teach me. Why? Because He taught me very early to fix my mind on what He has said. Could I word it this way? Don't be conformed to this world but renew your what? Mind. Your mind. And the Lord will give you understanding of everything that He desires and that He wanted to communicate to a local New Testament assembly. Let's go to Him in prayer.